Welcome back to another exciting episode of P.S. Spooky Shiz, also known as Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and in today's episode, we'll be getting into ghost stories. We start off our tale at History.com, where they have an article, The History of Ghost Stories. Since ancient times, ghost stories, tales of spirits who return from the dead to haunt the places they left behind, have figured prominently in the folklore of many cultures around the world. A rich subset of these tales involve historical figures ranging from queens and politicians to writers and gangsters, many of whom died early, violent or mysterious deaths. What is a ghost? The concept of a ghost, also known as a specter, is based on the ancient idea that a person's spirit exists separately from his or her body, and may continue to exist after that person dies. Because of this, many societies began to use funeral rituals as a way of ensuring that the dead person's spirit would not return to haunt the living. A little side thing they have here says, Did you know the notorious mobster Al Capone has reportedly appeared to disrespectful visitors at his funeral plot in the Illinois Cemetery? Spectral banjo music has supposedly been heard from inside Capone's old cell at Alcatraz, where he was one of the first inmates. All right. Places that are haunted are usually believed to be associated with some occurrence or emotion in the ghost's past. They are often a former home owner or the place where he or she died. Aside from actual ghostly apparitions, traditional signs of haunting range from strange noises, lights, odors, or breezes to the displacement of objects, bells that ring spontaneously, or musical instruments that seem to play on their own. Early Ghost Sightings In the 1st century AD, the great Roman author and statesman Pliny the Younger recorded one of the first notable ghost stories in his letters, which became famous for their vivid account of life during the heyday of the Roman Empire. Pliny reported the, that the specter of an old man with long beard and rattling chains was haunting his house in Athens. The Greek writer Lucian and Pliny's fellow Roman Plautus also wrote memorable ghost stories. Centuries later, in 856 AD, the first poltergeist, a ghost that causes physical disturbances such as loud noises or objects falling or being thrown around, was reported at a farmhouse in Germany. The poltergeist tormented the family living there by throwing stones and starting fires, among other things. Three Historical Ghosts One of the most frequently reported ghost sightings in England dates back to the 16th century. Anne Boleyn, the second wife of Henry VIII, and mother of Queen Elizabeth I, was executed at the Tower of London in May 1536 after being accused of witchcraft, treason, incest, and adultery. Sightings of Boleyn's ghosts have been reported at the Tower as well. America's own rich tradition of historical ghosts begins with one of the most illustrious founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin. Don't get me started on what they found in his basement. Beginning in the late 19th century, Franklin's ghost was seen near the library of the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. Some reports held that the statue of Franklin in front of the society comes to life and dances in the streets. 
Though many ghost sightings have been reported at the White House in Washington, D.C. over the years, perhaps no political figure has made so frequent an appearance in the afterlife as Abraham Lincoln, the nation's 16th president, who was killed by an assassin's bullet in April of 1865. Lincoln, formerly a lawyer and congressman from Illinois, is said to have been seen wandering near the old Springfield Capitol building, as well as his nearby law offices. At the White House, everyone from first ladies to queens to prime ministers have reported seeing the ghost or feeling the presence of Honest Abe, particularly during the administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt, another president who guided the country through a time of great upheaval and war. Some locations simply seem to lend themselves to hauntings, perhaps due to the dramatic or grisly events that occurred there in the past. Over the centuries, sightings of spectral armies have been reported on famous battlefields around the world, including important battle sites from the English Civil War in the 17th century. The bloody Civil War battlefield of Gettysburg and the World War I sites of Gallipoli near Turkey and the Somme in northern France. Another particularly active center for paranormal activity is the HMS Queen Mary, a cruise ship built in 1936 for the Cunard White Star Line. After serving in the British Royal Navy in World War II, the 81,000-ton ship retired in Long Beach, California in 1967. The plan was to turn it into a floating luxury hotel and resort. Since then, the Queen Mary has become notorious for its spectral presences, with more than 50 ghosts reported over the years. The ship's last chief engineer, John Smith, reported hearing unexplained sounds and voices from the area near the ship's bow, in almost the same location as a doomed British aircraft cruiser, the Coracoa, had pierced a hole when it sank after an accidental wartime crash that killed more than 300 sailors aboard. Smith also claimed to have encountered the ghost of Winston Churchill, or at least his spectral cigar smoke. The Prime Minister's old stateroom aboard the ship is where these would happen. Many visitors to the Queen Mary have reported seeing a phantom crew member in blue overalls walking the decks. Around the ship's swimming pool, reports have been made of mysterious splashes and ghostly women in old-fashioned bathing suits or dresses along with the trails of wet footsteps appearing long after the pool has been drained. Among major cities, New York is especially rich with ghost histories. The spirit of Peter Dewey Vissant, the city's last Dutch colonial govern governor, has been seen stomping around the East Village on his wooden leg since shortly after his death in 1672. The author, Mark Twain, is believed to haunt the stairwell of his one-time village apartment building. The ghost of poet Dylan Thomas is said to sometimes occupy his usual corner table at the West Village's White Horse Tavern, where he drank a fatal 18 shots of scotch in 1953. Perhaps the most famous New York ghost is that of Aaron Burr, who served as vice president under Thomas Jefferson, but is best known for killing Alexander Hamilton in a duel in 1804. Burr's ghost is said to roam the streets of his old neighborhood, also the West Village. Burr's spectral activity is focused particularly on one restaurant, one if by land, two if by sea, which is located in a Barrow Street building that was once Burr's carriage house. All right, very cool article.
So we go over to Mount Vernon org uh, to an article that they have called Ghost Stories. For decades, there have been reports by visitors and staff at George Washington's home of supernatural activity. Below are a number of Mount Vernon's ghost stories staff have recorded over the years. Of course, the most interesting of all the bedrooms is the one belonging to the immortal George and in which he died. In it, the original four-poster bed whereon Washington passed his last moments. This is the historic chamber that is haunted. Of that, there would seem to be little doubt. Many people within recent years have slept in it, and they declare they were awed by the viewless presence of the nation's first president. They deny earnestly that the notion is based on imagination. Few of these temporary occupants have been able to get any sleep at all. Obviously, it is one thing to see a ghost, and quite another to feel one, to be aware of the nearness of a strange... Mrs. William Beale and a friend of hers spent the night at Mount Vernon. At their own request, they were permitted to occupy Washington's bedroom. In the middle of the night, they were awakened by the sputtering of their candle. They had lighted one surreptitiously and were burning it in the middle of a basin of water. Fancied they saw a spook. It went out with a noise, and they began to feel alarm. Miss Beale said to her friends, You are on the side of the bed where Washington died. The other replied, No, I'm not. He died on your side. Finally, they decided that the question was doubtful, and there was no more sleep for them that night. They got up, dressed themselves, and sat around until morning, scared by every squeak of the window, and at one moment they were sure they heard Washington's sword clank distinctly in the corner. A woman on the stairs. During a typical day at work, around 1980, while stationed in the central passage, something caught an interpreter's eye. She saw the figure of an unidentified woman dressed in 18th century clothing on the stairs. The figure was carrying a large punch bowl filled with a flower arrangement. The figure disappeared upon reaching the bottom of the staircase. An angry gentleman. An interpreter was in the central passage on a particularly crowded day in the spring or summer in the 1980s. She thought she heard someone in the room behind her, thinking that a visitor had gotten into the area by going up under the rope barriers. She entered the little parlor to shoo them out. Much to her surprise, she found an older gentleman sporting a large mustache and dressed in 19th or early 20th century clothing with his sleeves rolled up and secured with garters. When he saw that he had her attention, he shouted, What the hell is going on here? A reference to the noise a school group or groups were making. The interpreter told him that she was trying to quiet them down, and the, then the man disappeared. She later saw a portrait of the gentleman in question. It was Colonel Harrison Howell Dodge, Mount Vernon's director for about 50 years, until his death in the late 1930s. She felt something brush past her, coming out of the little parlor. Looking down, all she could see were the feet and bottoms of the skirts of a young girl in 18th century dress, running along the central passage. Frequently, an alarm would go off in the stable. Then, in about the time it would take to unsaddle and put up a horse and walk from the stable to the mansion, an alarm would go off in the Washington bedchamber. Guards dispatched to check out the situation invariably found nothing of the, out of the ordinary. This man's explanation was that the general was coming home, made his horse comfortable, and then went up to his room. Clanging keys. 
a member of the Mount Vernon Security Department recalls unexplained activities in 2012. My first experience with something I cannot explain occurred in the mansion during the early years of the candlelight tours. The event took place on the anniversary of George Washington's death around 10.30 p.m. After the house had been cleared, I locked myself in. It was my responsibility to check the alarms for their proper positioning. When I was in the mansion study, I heard a heavy set of keys being walked across the floor in the Washington bedchamber directly above. As I approached the back stairs to go up to the bedroom, the sound of the keys abruptly stopped. It was well known that General Washington carried a heavy set of keys and that he could be heard as he walked through the house, the yellow room. A 2006 supervisor from the History Interpretation Department recalls her first encounter. My first encounter with a ghost occurred in the yellow room of the mansion in 2006. I was a supervisor in the History Interpretation Department Supervisors clear and lock the mansion after checking and rechecking for assurance that no one has been left in the mansion after hours. After letting the last interpreter out the study door, I walked up the back stairs, past the Washington beds chamber, and into the yellow room. I suddenly felt myself being pushed, feeling the pressure of someone's hands on my back, on the back of my shoulders. I turned to look and no one was there. It wasn't it was obvious I wasn't wanted in the yellow bedchamber. This happened several more times, and I decided I would not go back upstairs alone. I invited an another interpreter to stay with me and travel the back stairs to the yellow room. Nothing happened. The next time, when I was alone, I was once again pushed through the room. To keep this from being disturbed, I felt it was best that I not use the back stairs, but to remove my shoes and cross through the downstairs bedchamber to the central passage and lock the door for the evening. Alright, a ghost at the tomb. An interpreter from 2006 explains what happened to her at Washington's tomb. The first time I experienced this ghost was Easter morning in 2006, when I was scheduled to open Washington's tomb. It was early and very quiet, or there was no one around. The guests had not made their way from the mansion yet. I stood in front of the open door. I saw an ectoplasm in the far right corner of the tomb. When I moved, the ectoplasm moved. I watched it as it became a blur in my vision, and it continued to move around. I took a photo that showed a streak of light through the blur. The second photo showed the blur. As soon as voices of guests coming down the hill could be heard, the ectoplasm disappeared. This happened on three different occasions. A woman from the Civil War. A member of Mount Vernon's youth programs team recounts her experience. Originally, my office was located in the Teacher Resource Center of the Education Center, which is now B. Washington. It was after hours and the staff had left. I gathered my coat and bag and set them on the table facing my desk. As I turned on to put on my coat, I saw a female figure standing in the door of my office. She was dressed in clothing from the Civil War period, and she was totally gray. Her complete body and clothing were gray. She stood in the doorway and looked straight ahead without moving. Her stare was very stern. It happened quickly, and then she was gone. There was no doubt in my mind that Anne Pamela Cunningham, founder of the Mount Vernon's Ladies Association, had been in the room. Wandering in the night. One night, around 2010, a couple of security officers were driving around Mount Vernon's grounds very late at night. They saw a little girl on the path ahead of them, so they stopped suddenly. Then the girl appeared right next to them, 
they quickly spun around and drove away as fast as they could. I mean, I would call Ghost on a little girl <laughs> alone on a path. But also, what if that was a real girl and she just freaked you out and you just left her? <laughs> That's messed up. <laughs> Alright, let's move on. A Candle in the Night. Character interpreter tells what she experienced inside the mansion in 2017. I've worked at Mount Vernon on and off since 2004. I most recently returned in January of 2017. The estate was abuzz with the latest spooky story. On December 15th of 2016, some strange sounds were heard coming from the third floor, and there had been reports of the temperature dropping by 20 degrees. When the tale was shared with me, I was determined to see if it would happen again. On December 14th, the anniversary of the general's death, I was on the third floor waiting for some haunting, but nothing happened. However, when I returned the next night, the vibe in that area had changed. Upon looking into the southwest bedchamber, I noticed an electric candle was on. That's strange, I thought. It was dark last night. Had the collections team come and turned it on? Not likely. The third floor isn't open to the public. Then it hit me. George Washington died on December 14th, and the next day Martha Washington shut up the bedroom they shared and moved into the southwest bedchamber. Apparently, she's still marking that as a sad day. Alright, the Mount Vernon Monster. Residents of the neighborhood surrounding Mount Vernon endured months of nocturnal terror in 1979. Police helicopters hovered with searchlights, patrol officers on foot, Crouched in the woods, radios at the ready, a long May night passed quietly. The Mount Vernon monster was nowhere to be found. This night, and the mystery that prevailed for the better part of 1979, was covered in a May 12, 1979 article in the Washington Post. For the last nine months, the article reads, Nocturnal screaming has come from a patch of woods about one mile from the historic home of George Washington. Theories abounded as to the sourcing of the screaming, which the Post described as eerie, muted wails, like someone had been strangled in the shower. Residents offered different explanations, a wild boar, really loud frogs, some guy blowing in a wine bottle, a bard or hoot owl, a broken microphone on a CB outfit, a parrot, a mouse with an amplifier, a strangled dog, the ghost of George Washington, and the ghost of George Washington's pigs. One resident described seeing a creature in her backyard, six feet tall and walking upright. Some neighborhood children captured audio of the wailing, which portable cassette recorders in the middle of the night. But despite all the efforts, the Mount Vernon monster, as the mysterious creature came to be known, never revealed its secrets. The brouhaha, or the brouhaha, that feels like a made-up word. Okay, the brouhaha didn't escape the notice of the Mount Vernon's Ladies Association, which noted in its internal 1979 council minutes, reports of an alleged Mount Vernon monster has appeared in the Washington area newspapers. I don't know why they have that accent, that just came out. And have been circulated around the country by the Associated Press. No one has seen the monster, but various people, including Mount Vernon employees, claim to have heard its howls, screams, and shrieks. Descriptions of the voice vary from a wooded area within a mile of Mount Vernon. The mystery has never been solved, and though the creatures, the creature wasn't proven to be Bigfoot or Georgefoot, neither has it been disproven. 
All right, we go over to today.com where they have an article, 15 Real Ghost Stories That Will Send Chills Down Your Spine. As if all the articles kind of claim that. It's like, this is the most scary thing ever. And it could just be clickbait, but let's read on. All right, this is by Sarah Lemire. All right, the grandma's in the cemetery. Jeff, a resident of Dayton, Ohio, was driving with his three-year-old son, Miles, in the back seat when they passed by a cemetery. It was a modest cemetery with only flowers and small plaques. It basically looks like a giant garden, Jeff explains, on Monsters Among Us. According to Jeff, his toddler, who'd been happily singing, abruptly stopped, pointed to the cemetery, and exclaimed, Look at all those people! Jeff turned to look, but didn't see a soul. Confused, he asked Miles what he was talking about. All those people over there, his son replied. There sure are a lot of grandmas. As Jeff tells it, the chills ran down his spine as he asked his son what the people were doing. They're all standing there, looking down at the grass, Miles said. Completely unsettled by the conversation, Jeff sped up and drove home. Later the same day, he says his young son watching TV when he turned to Jeff and said, You know, they weren't alive. Thinking Miles was referring to the cartoon, Jeff asked what he meant. Those people we saw, they were all paused, his son replied. I don't know if my kid has the sixth sense, Jeff says, or if he just has a wild imagination. I will concur that I do have a cousin who has always said every time we have a family funeral that there are extra people that are not living and no one else can see that come to pay reverence at the funeral. So I do believe that this kind of phenomenon happens or that people see uh, people standing in cemeteries and stuff and they're not alive. (laughs) All right. Let's see. The ghost of Captain Joseph White. Through Salem, Massachusetts is best known for its infamous witch trials. There have been plenty of other chilling stories throughout its 400 year history. One of them is the tale of Captain Joseph White, a wealthy merchant who was found bludgeoned to death in his bed. It was a crime motivated by money, according to Giovanni Albazio, owner and tour guide at the Salem Historical Tours, who says the 82-year-old merchant was allegedly targeted by greedy brothers hoping to get their hands on his will. Brothers Joseph and Francis Knapp enlisted the help of Richard Crowninshield to help get the job done. Late in the evening, when Captain White is asleep, Dick Crowninshield <laughs> comes in He goes upstairs to the second floor and takes a club and bashes the captain over the head and crushes his skull. The murder resulted in a scandalous trial and is said to be the inspiration for Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, as well as the game Clue. Whether it's the brutal nature of the crime or revenge for the attempt to steal his money, the spirit of Captain Joseph White is said to still wander the halls of his former home. People believe Captain White is roaming around the house, protecting whatever treasure he reportedly has. Tourists take photos of the house despite being empty. Many pictures reveal shadowy figures, both male and female, 
in the windows and on the landing of the Gardner Pingree house. The Haunted Ventriloquist Doll. I know. We talked about ventriloquist dolls in the last episode, but this one is actually in this article. So, When Marty was a child back in the 90s, she tells Monsters Among Us that she was a fan of ventriloquist Edgar Bergen and his dummy sidekick Charlie McCarthy. She says that when her father came across a ventriloquist doll as he wandered through the small magic shop located in Santa Rosa, California, he decided to buy it for her birthday. While ringing up the sale, Marty says the cashier gave her father weird vibes and said to him, You know when you put your hand inside the doll, he's going to come alive. Laughing off the comment, he brought the dummy home to his daughter. According to Marty, she was over the moon when her dad gave her the doll, saying, I was so happy when I got the doll, I was obsessed. And before long, strange things started happening. Though impossible because the doll's head was made of hard plastic, she says its expression would change, including his smile. Worried something would happen to her precious dummy, Marty's family shut it away in a cupboard most nights. One night, she and her family were awakened by the pitter-patter of steps in their living room. Thinking it was the dog or another family member, they went to look. No one was there, except for the doll, who was sitting on the couch. We remember specifically we had always put it away because I love that doll so much that I took care of it, Marty says on the podcast. Other strange occurrences began happening. While Marty and her dad were away, her uncle was alone in the house. The uncle says he heard Marty's father calling his name from the living room, even though he wasn't home. When he went to look, he found the doll, once again sitting on the couch, and no one else. All of our family was pretty much scared of the doll, Marty said. People would start hearing their names being called, we would hear walking at night, so we just decided we needed to get rid of it. Being Mexican and religious, Marty says her parents wanted to burn the doll in case it was demonic. They put it on the grill, and according to Marty, it would not burn. This doll wouldn't go up in flames at all, whatsoever. They tried cutting it with a knife, but were unsuccessful. Finally, they threw it in the trash can. After the garbage was collected, Marty's dad went to retrieve his bin. In it was the doll. To rid themselves of the dummy, they dug a hole in the backyard, then filled it with cement. Marty and family have long since moved away, but she says they still think about the doll and the possibility that eventually it finds one of us. Oh, that is so creepy. Alright, we go over to... Cincinnati, the Graduate College, where they have an article, Spooky Ghost Stories and Urban Legends of Cincinnati, written by Chris Pession, graduate assistant for the graduate school. The unexplainable occurrences in Spring Grove Cemetery. Being that this is the third largest cemetery in the United States, it's no wonder that Spring Grove Cemetery is home to many spooky tales to make your skin crawl. Gravekeepers have reportedly felt something, or someone, grab at their legs without explanation. Mysterious white wolves are rumored to patrol areas of the land. Figures are said to appear at once upon, or are said to disappear at once upon being spotted. Perhaps the most popular ghost story of the cemetery is that of C.C. Brewer, 
an optometrist who requested that his eyes be removed and placed in a bust on his headstone. Oh my gosh. The eyes in the bust, while not truly those of Brewer himself, they are glass, are extremely lifelike and are said to follow curious viewers around, watching their every move. Springboro Grove is a treasure trove of stories, haunted or otherwise, and many historic Cincinnati figures, including the father and son of President Howard Taft being buried there. Be sure to visit the cemetery and walk amongst the headstones to see what kind of stories you can unearth. The Bones of Cincinnati Music Hall. One of the city's most beautiful buildings is also reportedly one of its most haunted. Cincinnati Music Hall, which was erected in 1878, sits on a plot of land that once belonged to a pauper's gravesite. The ghost stories even predate the building's completion. The tales began when the ground was excavated to make room for an elevator shaft and workers unearthed over 200 pounds of bones. The staff at Cincinnati Music Hall readily back up the rumored hauntings. The late conductor of the Cincinnati Pops, Eric Kunzel, was a witness. In describing his encounters with spirits, he is quoted in saying, If you think I'm crazy, just come here sometime at 3 o'clock in the morning. They're very friendly. Right? They also do ghost tours at that location. Bob Mackey's Portal to the Underworld. Bob Mackey's restaurant in Wilder, Kentucky, just south of the Ohio River, is reportedly the site of one of the most haunted destinations in the country. The restaurant, which serves as a concert venue and mechanical bull riding establishment, has a very sinister past. Prior to serving as a restaurant and honky-tonk, the building was home to a slaughterhouse. The well in the basement was used to place and dispose of the remains. It is said that once the slaughterhouse closed, mob activity and cult rituals became the norm, resulting in a series of notorious murders. The spirits of these victims and their perpetrators are said to haunt the premises, a rumor that has attracted ghost hunters and television crews for decades. Upon entering the venue, visitors are given a disclaimer that the owner is not responsible for any mischief from ghosts or evil spirits. Visit the restaurant yourself to decide if these rumors have any truth or if they're just a load of crap. <laughs> the Sightings of Loveland Frogman On an early summer day in 1955, a businessman claims to have seen a group of humanoid frogs that stood on two legs and disappeared into the Little Miami River. Another sighting occurred nearly two decades later when a police officer came across a mysterious creature along the river, which was trying to escape. He shot and killed the creature and took it back to the station to show another police officer. The officer later came out to state that the mysterious creature was a tailless iguana slipping away on its hind legs. While this may debunk that particularly sighting, it was not the last appearance of the supposed frogman. The latest sighting occurred in the summer of 2016 when Pokemon Go took the nation by storm. A teenager playing the game claimed to see a gigantic frog slip away into the river. This is the only sighting with video and photographic evidence of what the witness saw. Needless to say, the Cincinnati area has its own Bigfoot figure in the Loveland Frogman, a cult icon that has inspired local musicians and graphic t-shirts that say, I love the or I saw the Loveland Frogman.
We go now to Popula.com, where there's an article, Our Haunted Apartment in Montreal. 20 years on, the author reflects on being trapped in a vortex of dark energy. This was written October 5th, uh, 2022, by Nathan Munn. The first time I visited the apartment, I didn't like it. It was the summer of 2003, and my friend Andrew and I were desperate to find a place. I'd seen an ad in a local weekly paper for a two-bedroom apartment in the hip Plateau Mont-Royal neighborhood of Montreal for only $7.50 a month, and called the number right away to arrange a viewing. Under the bright summer sun, I walked past the laid-back bistros and shops on the bustling Mont-Royal Avenue and turned onto Rue de la Roche, a tree-lined street of two- and three-story walk-ups. As I counted past the addresses, I realized the apartment would be situated halfway between busy Mont-Royal and at the end of the street, the vast, tranquil Parc La Fontaine. Perfect, I thought, hoping our search for a home was about to end. The apartment had a single window, overlooking a sidewalk, one story below. There was a small living room with scuffed parquet floors and beige walls connecting to a cramped kitchen with retro wood cabinets and blood-red melamine countertops. The place was vacant and clean, but right away I sensed the place had bad vibes. I brushed them aside and tried to stay positive and give it a chance. The landlady, all business, stood off to one side as I made my way through the rooms. Heavily varnished wood trim gave the place a cottage feel, but walking down the tiny wood-paneled hallway felt claustrophobic, like being in a sauna. The doors to the bathroom and main bedroom had been replaced with sliding mirrors, which made the tight space feel confusing. In the bathroom, I did a double take. Instead of a toilet sink shower setup you'd normally find in a two-bedroom flat, there was a ridiculous, luxurious watch washroom more suited to a suite at the Trump Taj Mahal. A huge faux marble hot tub dominated the space, and a double vanity sink under gaudy brass lights ran along one wall, creating an atmosphere of stifling warmth. It was the strangest little apartment I'd ever seen. Turned off, I thanked the landlady and walked back to the place Andrew and I were about to leave, a spacious but grungy two-bedroom on Rue on Rue Papineau. I figured I'd take my chances elsewhere. Over the next couple days, though, the memory of the apartment seemed to shift in my mind. It was definitely weird, I thought, but also kind of cool. Like a cottage in the middle of the city, the price was right, and the hot tub was pretty awesome, I told Andrew. Maybe the place would work for us after all. Whether out of increasing desperation or something else, we signed a one-year lease. The apartment on Rue de la roche was ours or maybe it was the other way around the day we moved in andrew his girlfriend anna and i showed up in a moving van and piled our boxes and garbage bags full of stuff on the sidewalk i hauled the first bag up the stairs and when i swung the door open the apartment was just as i remembered it except for one thing a large black feather lay in the middle of the living room floor the three of us stared at it for a moment what the hell? I asked out loud. Andrew came in, gingerly picked up the feather, and stuck it in the soil of one of our big potted plants. It felt ominous, like a sign. 
but we shrugged it off and set about arranging our new home. The first night, settled into my bed in the main bedroom, I drifted off to the patter of rain outside and feeling snug in our new place. Then came the nightmare. I dreamed I was in an old house with flowered wallpaper and quaint furniture, standing with the little girl, who was about five. She looked up at me sadly, her dark hair and pigtails, and asked if I could stay. I crouched down to her level and gently said that I couldn't and that I had to go. When I said these words, her gaze fixed on me, full of anger. You'd better bring those people here, she threatened, her voice twisting from that of a small child into something haggard and demonic. Or... Then with her mouth agape, both of her ink-black pupils cracked like egg yolks. Black liquid poured from her eyes down her face, and the dark oil blood coursing in rivulets around her mouth paralyzed in a silent scream. I woke up, drenched in sweat, to find a steady rain pelting the window. I was so disturbed, I didn't sleep again that night. For the next few weeks, I kept the light on and my door open after dark. I was 23 years old, and that was just the beginning. Summer gave way to fall, and the trees on our street changed to a burning ochre and deep reds, and the park was blanketed in dead leaves, and strange things kept happening at our place. Andrew and I were hanging out one night, playing guitar in the living room, when our little stereo a 90s-era CD player combo with a screen that showed a cheesy light display when it started up suddenly switched itself on. And from having been completely shut off, the machine came to life. The light show danced, and the five-disc CD changer rotated noisily. Andrew and I looked at each other and then stared at the stereo. After a long moment, the machine stopped whirring and clicked, and the song started to play. Ray Charles' smooth voice poured out of the speakers, but not from the beginning of a song. The music had queued up midway through a track. Over a gentle arrangement, he sang, Here we go again. I'll take her back again one more time. Then just as abruptly as it started, the music stopped. The dancing lights were still. It felt like the machine was smiling at us. Jesus fucking Christ, Andrew said. Whatever was happening, it wasn't funny. We packed up the guitars and called it a night. A few weeks later, I was walking home at three in the morning, buzzing but not drunk, as I walked up our quiet street. I could hear music in the distance. When I reached our place and climbed the stairs, I realized the loud rock and roll was coming from our apartment. What the F, I thought. We hadn't planned a party, and music was cranked up far louder than any of us would play it at such an hour. At the top of the stairs, I peered into our living room. I saw only black inside, the hairs on the back of my neck tingling. I unlocked the door and pushed it open. The room was pitch black, except for the stereo, blasting rock music at full volume, the light show dancing maniacally. My skin crawled as if I were in a nest of writhing snakes. I flicked on the light. In the kitchen opposite the living room, every single one of the cabinets and drawers was yanked wide open. The large pantry, the storage above the stove, and the double doors under the sink, the cutlery drawers, everything. 
Terrified, I moved through the apartment, madly switching off the stereo, slamming the cabinets and drawers shut, feeling again as if something was laughing at me. As I raced to close everything, I glanced to the door to Andrew's room, directly off the kitchen. It was shut tight. I got a hold of myself and went to bed. The next morning, I was sitting with a cup of tea when Andrew and Anna emerged from their room, blithely smiling and chatting. Did you hear the music last night? I demanded. No, what music? You didn't hear it? At three in the morning. They said they hadn't. How could they have slept through all that noise? Whatever the cause, my friends could tell I was deeply disturbed. We sat quietly together, drinking tea, discussing our situation. Back then, in our early 20s, Andrew, Anna, and I were leading wild lifestyles. I was a punk rocker, and they were night owls in the restaurant industry. A big poster of the anarchy symbol on our fridge summed up the general vibe at our place, which was being stoked harder, perhaps by the chaotic energy of the apartment itself. The strange, pimp cottage atmosphere seemed to encourage darkness and debauchery. Not only did the stereo keep turning itself on, the same thing happened on two other occasions, each time Ray Charles, each time playing the same line from the same song. All of us continued to suffer bad dreams. We began to feel like we were in a vortex of dark energy, attracting trouble and discord. Unfortunate events unrelated to the haunting seemed to be piling up. I lost my job at a depanier, leaving me in dire financial straits, and the girl I'd been seeing broke it off. Home alone one night, I heard a thumping from outside. On edge, I quickly stepped to the front door and swung it open, but it was no ghost. It was Andrew, balled up in a dusting of snow at the bottom of the stairs. He'd been mugged on his way home from work. I helped him up the stairs, and we got inside, and I couldn't believe his state. Face covered in blood, his cheeks and jaw were swollen. He staggered to the sink and ran cold water over his bruised hands, spitting blood into the swirling stream. At that moment, the winter was closing in. Everything about our lives seemed to be on a highway to hell. Looking f around the apartment with its bloody counters and funhouse mirrors, all I wanted was to get out. After a quick house meeting, we decided to rid ourselves of the apartment as soon as possible. The fastest way would be to sublet it. Selfishly, and out of a sense of desperation, we agreed that we wouldn't mention anything about the haunting to prospective renters. On the spring day, a tall, bespeckled man, gregarious and a bit strange himself, came to see the place. Kurt was in his early 30s and had just moved to Montreal from Washington, D.C., we made small talk as we toured the apartment, him frowning, me silently praying he would take the place. He stood in the living room with his hands on his hips. It's really small and too expensive for the size, he said, concluding that he'd pass on it. We shook hands and he said goodbye. But two days later, Kurt called back. Is the place still available? He asked, sounding rushed. I said it was, and he said he'd be over straight away. When he arrived, his mind was already made up. I definitely want it, he said, as he chilled on the couch. Me rolling a joint, I quietly ecstatic as he raved about the place. It's just so cool, that hot tub, and such a great location. Just as I had, he dismissed the place at first. Slowly, we'd 
both changed our minds, as if succumbing to some seductive power. I said nothing to discourage his enthusiasm as we got stoned. Kurt and I visited the landlady, a woman whose last name coincidentally is French for the word cockroach. Together, we agreed Kurt would sublet the place until the end of our lease, at which point he would be the new leaseholder. In the days that followed, Andrew and I celebrated with beers and started packing our things, thrilled that it was time to get out of Dodge. But the apartment wasn't quite finished with us yet. I was alone in the apartment on the day before Kurt moved in. Andrew and I had already moved most of our stuff out, leaving just a few last boxes. As I scrubbed the counters and swept the floors in a final cleanup, I called a taxi to come pick me up. As I passed the bathroom, I paused for a second, interrupted by a thought. When would I ever have access to a hot tub again? Probably never, I figured. On a whim, I canceled the taxi and decided to have one last soak before leaving the place forever. I filled the tub with warm water, stripped down. I turned to the control panel on the wall to set the jets on the tub, which we'd used dozens of times during our months here, and switched them on. The motor, like a heart deep in the floor of the bathroom, started rumbling. As I turned around and looked at the water, instead of bubbles rising to the from the tiny holes inside the tub, black liquid suddenly burst from every one of them, thick streaming tendrils of black as the cracked eyes of the girl from my nightmare quickly clouded the water like ink. Shocked, I spun around and shut off the motor. By the time I looked back at the tub, no more than two seconds later, the water had turned a deep, murky black. This was too much. Swearing in disbelief, I reached into the dark pool and yanked the plug. The black water ran out steadily, leaving a, tra a light trail of what appeared to be ash in the bottom of the tub. I touched the black substance, rubbed it between my fingers. It could have been residue from the pipes and probably was... But why had the tub suddenly expunged the filth at that precise moment? After dozens of times of using the tub over the past eight months, the jet's running without problem every time. Why then? I didn't ponder the question. I already knew the answer. It was a final F.U. from whatever energy was trapped in that place. It was a way of saying, you don't like it here? Good riddance. I hastily got dressed, called the cab company, and stood by the front door, my back to the apartment, anxious to leave the nightmare behind for good. I reached out to Andrew and Anna to hear what they remember about the apartment. Twenty years hadn't diminished the intensity of our memories at all, though we did remember some things differently. De La Roach? Andrew texted me back after I wrote him. Fuck. I dreamt about the little girl three times, he told me during a phone call. The first time, she was standing on the rooftop, and her eyes were bleeding. I don't remember the others. He recalled that a friend of ours had slept on the couch and woke up in tears after dreaming about the little girl, too. He remembers the episode with the CD changer and Ray Charles clearly. Andrew also told me things I hadn't known. I almost died twice there, he said both times from falling asleep with lit cigarettes. He blamed himself, not an unquieted spirit, for waking up to find his pillow on fire, but he told me he never drifted off while smoking any other time before or after our time at De La Roche. Something bad happened in that place. 
that was a long time ago, and I can still see that little girl. That place was so creepy, Anna told me over the phone. My two clearest memories are the Ray Charles thing and the kitchen cupboards. In her recollection, she had been home alone napping and awoke to find all the cabinets and drawers open, just as I had. But wait, the way I remember it, I was home late one night to find the stereo blasting with all the lights off. When I turned the lights on, all the kitchen cabinets were open, I told her. Hmm, I was sure I was alone. Maybe it happened twice, Anna said. It's well known that people can create false memories based on suggestions from others. It's possible I heard the story from Anna and my mind contributed to it with a late night music episode. Or maybe my story told to her and Andrew 20 years ago stuck its way into her memories. Or maybe it did happen twice. Anna agreed that many bad things, unrelated to the haunting, happened while we were living there. By the time we moved out, she recounted she'd lost both of her jobs as she and Andrew had broken up. As Kurt took over the apartment, Andrew and I headed our separate ways. I got a job and moved into a crash pad with a couple of dudes I had met. The place had broken glass on the floor and puke in the toilet, but it felt like a meditation retreat after the hellish experience of De La Roche. In the months that followed, Kirk would call me up now and then to score weed. I visited the apartment a few times, smoking with Kurt, keeping my eyes on the cabinets. One time, after he'd been there a couple months, as we were passing a joint back and forth, he suddenly asked me, Has anything weird ever happened to you in this place? Cautiously, I replied that some odd things may have happened when we were there. Without getting specific, I asked him what he had experienced. It's the weirdest thing. Last week, the lights started turning themselves on and off. It went on for a while. I listened and nodded, but kept my mouth shut. A few weeks after that, he called and told me the puppy he bought would often sit facing into the living room corner, barking at the ceiling. Kurt also told me his girlfriend, who he said he had hated the apartment from the moment he got it, now refused to sleep there. She said she felt someone touch her on her shoulder, he said. I never heard from him again after that. A couple years later, I got a call from Andrew telling me that we had been summoned to court. What? What for? The landlady from De La Roche is suing us. It turned out Kurt had pulled a midnight move, illegally abandoning the apartment a couple months before the end of the sublet period. It had taken years for the case to wind its way through the court system. The day of the hearing, we were found liable for the unpaid rent and had to pay the landlady on the spot draining our meager accounts. Just like Andrew, Anna, and me, Kurt had evidently decided he had enough of the apartment and escaped just months after moving in. Consequences be damned. I was at home one day recently with my two kids at our house in a Montreal suburb. After spending some time writing the story while they watched TV, I called them into the kitchen and we sat down for a snack. Suddenly, we heard a shrill yowl from a normally quiet cow, or cat, <laughs> as if he was in pain. The three of us raced down to the basement to find our black and white cat staring into the corner, no longer making a sound. Snowflake? I asked gently. The cat turned to us, looked spooked. He never made a sound like that before, my seven-year-old daughter said. Maybe he saw a mouse, I suggested. 
Slightly uneasy, I told my kids it was time to head back upstairs when I noticed my three-year-old son was drawing on the whiteboard. What are you drawing there, bud? I asked. This is an apartment, he said, mesmerized by his work as he carefully dragged an orange marker across the board. And this is a map to it. I hadn't told him what I'd been writing about. And that's where the story ends. Very cool. We go now to getpocket.com, where there's an article, Project Poltergeist, by Celia Blancaflor. When unexplained events terrify a young boy in the 1960s, New Jersey, the first purported haunting in a public housing project begins. Unearthed through original interviews and thousands of pages of archival records. May 6, 1961. On the evening of his 13th birthday, Ernie Rivers, shy and serious, was playing in his bedroom in an apartment in the Felix Fund housing development in Newark, New Jersey. Loneliness had become a routine for Ernie, even on his birthday. His no-nonsense grandmother, Mabel Clark, took care of housework in her bedroom. As she did, glass jar on top of a dresser on the opposite end of the room crashed to the floor. Mabel was shaken for a moment. The jar seemed to have moved by itself, then brushed it off. Ernie heard the noise from his room, but didn't think much about it. On May 8th, two days after the glass jar incident, Ernie and his grandmother were eating in the kitchen when six punch bowl cups in the living room connected by an open doorway to the kitchen, came off the hooks on the wall and crashed to the floor, one after the other. That's when it really started, Mabel later recalled. Everything started smashing, smashing, smashing. Later that evening, several bottles in the bathroom fell on the floor and shattered. One of them, a bottle of antiseptic stored in the medicine cabinet, flew into the living room and landed on the floor. Stunned, Mabel walked to the bathroom only to find its door closed, making the bizarre incident flatly impossible. Not knowing what else to do, she rushed into the bathroom to take down the remaining bottles, containers, and items from the medicine cabinet and place them on the floor. When a neighbor came to their door later, Mabel, still reeling, tried to pretend everything was normal. The three of them, Mabel, Ernie, and neighbor Yetta Mandel were chatting over the hum of the television in the background when a cologne bottle from the bathroom suddenly darted into the living room. Zigzagging in midair, turning a jig in the air as a frightened Yetta described it, before shattering against the floor. The air filled with its strong scent. Yetta also watched a glass decanter begin moving by itself to the edge of the refrigerator. She raced to catch it just before it fell. Mabel had no choice but to come clean to Yetta about what had been happening the last two days. As she did, the lamp in the living room spontaneously shattered. The last straw. Mabel and Ernie fled, staying elsewhere for the night. A statuesque, self-sufficient, and reserved woman, Mabel did not like to draw attention to herself. She especially didn't want the housing authority catching wind of what was going on for fear that she and her grandson would be labeled unruly and kicked out of the apartment, probably accused of lying. Like many metropolitan areas in the United States in 1960s, Newark's 
public housing reinforced systematic segregation and was infested with racist practices against African-American families, such as theirs. But Mabel could only hide this for so long. Their lives had just begun to be turned upside down by what would come to be called the Project Poltergeist, the first haunted haunting documented by parapsychologists in a housing project in the United States. A dark turn in the family's history had led Ernie to live with his grandmother. Ernie's younger years were spent in Montclair, New Jersey, with his mother and father, Anne and Ernest, Anne Clark and Ernest Rivers Sr., in a cozy apartment on the third floor of a multifamily house. Ernest Sr. was a fighter in the Golden Gloves, an especially dangerous amateur boxing circuit with heavy mob ties. In 1948 and 1949, while working on a construction, as a construction worker, Anne mostly stayed home to take care of Ernie. Ernest Sr. was a fighter in the Golden Gloves, an especially dangerous amateur boxing circuit unit with heavy mob ties. In 1948 and 1949, while working as a construction worker, Anne mostly stayed at home to take care of Ernie. She was frequently sick. Because the couple had no insurance, they usually couldn't afford a doctor. And even when she did get checked, the causes of her conditions often remained mysterious. Less than two weeks before Christmas, 1956, Anne had fallen ill again. After watching television for a few hours, Ernest Sr. and Anne retired to their bedroom around 10 o'clock that night. Ernie, who was eight years old at the time, was asleep in the other room. I need to go to the doctor, Anne said. The only extra money I have is for Ernie's Christmas gifts, Ernest Sr. said. The argument escalated, and the last thing Ernest Sr. said was, You're nothing but a doctor's bill to me. In a nightmare she had th that night, Anne dreamed that her husband was attempting to kill her with a gun. Stirred awake by the dream in the middle of the night, Anne looked under the bed and found the suitcase where her husband kept his thirty-eight revolver. The same one from her dream, in case of emergencies. Anne pried the case open. She took the gun out and turned the radio on quietly before drifting back to sleep for about an hour. Waking up again at five o'clock in the morning, she stared at her husband for a few moments. Ernest, are you tired of me? She asked him. When he didn't respond, Anne cocked the gun before shooting him twice in the chest. Ernest Sr. died instantly. The noise woke up one of the other residents of the house, and Anne ran downstairs saying that her husband had shot himself after they got in an argument. Detectives took Anne to the police station, and after three hours, she confessed to the murder. In her statement to police, Anne said she worried that her husband had plans to kill her, recounting the dream she had right before she shot him, and his comment that she was a doctor's bill to him. On May 29, 1957, five months after the murder, Anne was sentenced to a term of 18 to 22 years at the Clinton Reform Reformatory for Women in Clinton, New Jersey. Shortly after, Ernie arrived at the Felix Fund housing development on 125 Rose Street to live with his maternal grandparents in their first floor four-bedroom apartment. Young Ernie continued to experience confusing changes. First, his grandfather passed away. Then in April of 1961, his mother Anne escaped from the minimum security institution 
She was still at large when these events at Mabel's apartment in, New in Newark began a month later. In those startling days after Ernie's 13th birthday, he and Mabel tallied close to 20 incidents involving plates, mugs, light bulbs, mirrors, and other objects falling or flying around the apartment. At one point, Ernie sat doing his schoolwork at the dining room table when he thought he saw movement from the side of the stove. After he caught the motion again out of the corner of his eye, he watched. As he later reported, one of the pepper shakers from the top of the stove started to levitate above the surface before rapidly floating over and landing beside him. Soon afterwards, according to the family's accounts, a glass floated from the kitchen sink and crashed onto the living room floor. With each terrifying occurrence, the two residents grew more and more perplexed and afraid. Twice during that time, Ernie and Mabel left to stay with her daughter and son-in-law, Ruth and William Hargwood, at their house in Belleville, the next town over, but they could only accommodate them for short stretches. Mabel cherished Ernie, calling him an unbelievably good boy, but he presented a frustrating case study in non-communication. The boy, who had been through so much upheaval, would never acknowledge feeling sadness or fear, for that matter, anything at all. He mostly replied to his grandmother's questions with a bland, I don't know, or yes. He seemed to harbor secrets. I don't know what goes on inside of him. I just can't explain it, Mabel later lamented. She wanted him to be more open to love. The specter of Anne and Ernest Sr.'s tragedy lurked everywhere, even as Anne herself lurked. Nobody knew where, after her escape from prison. It wasn't long before other residents and the public started to hear about what was happening at Mabel's apartment. Neighbors reported unusual noises. It was only a matter of time before the press picked up on it. On May 11th, Mabel's son-in-law, William, and other relatives were visiting when a Newark news reporter Douglas Eldridge stopped by. As the five of them chatted in the kitchen, they heard a cup fall and loudly crash by the pantry. Just a half hour before, Eldridge had been seen Eldridge had seen the cup sitting on a sturdy bookshelf. The report the reporter turned pale. It was impossible for the cup to have fallen on its own without some sort of push. At the time, Ernie had been lying in his bed while the adults sat in the kitchen. I was laughing when I first came here, William admitted. I'm not laughing anymore. A distraught Mabel re revealed that it was the fifth incident of the day. Reluctantly, opening up to the reporter, she recount recounted how a small mirror, a bottle of antiseptic, and a light bulb had all crashed and fallen at different times throughout the day. Ernie also described watching another light bulb unscrew itself before crashing to the floor. Reporters dubbed the events at the housing complex of the Project Poltergeist, citing paranormalists' belief that poltergeists usually fed on psychic energy of adolescence. Journalists eagerly connected the events to the presence of Ernie. For skeptics who suspected a hoax, the 13-year-old boy also seemed like the likely source of mischief. Everyone seemed to agree Ernie had something to do with the mysterious occurrences, though he insisted he didn't have a clue what caused them. When learning the earlier documented poltergeists tended to stop after a few months, Mabel balked, as did a visiting relative. A couple months? Why, you'd be in Greystone, 
psychiatric hospital by then. The housing development opened an investigation. Irving Laskowitz, the tenant relations division director of the Newark Housing Authority, took charge of the inquiry. In the eyes of many African-American residents, Newark authorities often looked for excuses to kick tenants out of public housing, at which point they would be at the mercy of predatory landlords who charged as much as triple the market value for rents. Sounds familiar? I don't want to move unless I have to, Mabel insisted. I don't think this is going to go on forever. It can't go on forever, replied Irving, who was dismissive of any idea of a poltergeist under his watch. Pretty soon you'll run out of things to break. Admittedly perplexed, officials swarmed through the four-room apartment. The Newark News reported of the investigation by Irving and his team. The officials examined every inch of the apartment as well as the surrounding units and the basement. There must be some kind of magnetism in the apartment. Irving said, sarcastically. One of Irving's aides added, maybe it's the moon. We'd better check on that. Despite their snide commentary, Irving admitted Mabel had a clear record the previous 20 years, and they also found no evidence of trickery or any physical cause for the seemingly invisible force. After things only got worse, Irving later sighed, I only wish we had... The NHA had to acknowledge that a strange, unexplainable phenomena hung over the apartment. They accepted the services of Edward Del Russo, a balding contractor and self-proclaimed exorcist, referred to by one of the housing officials as an amateur house de-haunter. Del Russo said he had the ability to work with unseen powers. We all have it, he added, but few people use it. He came by the apartment to banish the invisible forces, which he identified as a lost soul trying to get a message across to Mabel. He burned a beeswax candle on their living room coffee table and declared the poltergeist banished. But the forces proved to be immune to his attempt, or maybe became agitated because of them. In the days after Del Russo's demonstration, the press reported that the disturbances returned with a vengeance. A deep fear took hold of Mabel and spread throughout the housing complex. The spirit of Ernest Rivers Sr. might be responsible for the disturbances, trying to get Ernie away from her. Ernie, who had already been a target of bullying in the 8th grade at West Kinley Junior High School, had always tried to be strong about it, but now he seemed even more likely to be ostracized. Luckily, the other kids at the Felix Fold complex stuck by him especially one boy with whom Ernie was best friends. They continued to play in the courtyard and go to movies, but these attempts at normalcy were a facade. They needed help and fast, and needed more than a part-time exorcist. The media spread the word beyond Newark, and it eventually reached Dr. Charles D. Rieg, a Newark native and respected assistant professor in the Department of Management at Rutgers University with a long-standing interest in the parapsychology. After hearing about the curious case, he jumped at the chance to potentially interact with an actual poltergeist, German for noisy spirits. Researchers and professionals in the field had begun to refer formally to such phenomena as recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis, or RSPK. 
Reports of objects moving, seemingly at random, have been claimed for centuries and linked to larger supernatural occurrences. In one from 1846, witnesses and scientists observed a girl who, as she entered a room, would cause objects to scatter as though physically shoved. As paranormal researchers began to define the category of RSPK by studying historical and contemporary cases, they theorized that unseen forces interacted on human on a human agent, often an adolescent, which manifested in physical environment through disordered movements of commonplace objects at hand. Dr. Rieg, 37, who had a diminutive stature and warm demeanor, planned to come to the apartment to observe Ernie the night of May 12th. Earlier that day, Mabel was in the apartment with Yetta when an iron that weighed five pounds flew into her room. Ernie had been in the bathroom in a different part of the apartment at the time. That night, Dr. Rieg arrived and questioned them. Yetta told Rieg she saw the iron in the air and noticed that the cord was stretched out stiff behind it. Yetta would also describe to the professor witnessing the cover of a sugar bowl lift up and fall to the floor. The stuff came on like gangbusters, Mabel added to these accounts. A salt cellar, a large container of salt, launched from a shelf like a missile into Ernie's back. Yetta also recalled how she, Mabel, and Ernie entered the apartment and while turning on the lights saw a bookcase topple over. A bookcase! According to Mabel and Ernie, that had already fallen over a couple of other times. In another startling moment, the TV overturned as Ernie was turning the key to enter the apartment. Mabel then began turning the TV to face the wall, hoping that would prevent it from breaking if it were to fall again. Rieg, who had trained as an engineer, studied the apartment over the course of two days. Just before midnight on the second day, a loud knocking at the door startled Dr. Rieg and Ernie. We want to see the boy with the flying objects, a voice yelled from the other side. Several more people were heard in the background, some echoing the first voice in a taunting way while others laughed. Dr. Rieg and Ernie waited in silence, hoping the group of drunk young men would grow tired and leave. Then a rock sailed through an open window in the apartment. Rieg pulled Ernie into the kitchen to protect him. Just as Rieg was about to pick up the phone to call the police, a glass from the top of the counter fell to the floor. Rieg looked at Ernie, who was visibly upset from the commotion and loud noises outside, standing near to comfort. Rieg put his arm around Ernie to comfort him. While Rieg was on the phone with the police, a crash came from the living room. A lamp had fallen off the table and toppled onto the floor, about 15 feet away from him. Can you call my uncle and ask him to come get me? Ernie pleaded softly. The boy who had tried to remain so stoic now appeared terrified. Dr. Rieg, who had still been holding Ernie at that point, let go. Suspicious by vocation, he examined the area for any sign of trickery. I checked the remains of the lamp and the cord to see if any strings or wires were attached, he recalled later, but he found nothing. With Ernie having been by Rieg's side throughout the night, the investigator ruled out any possibility that Ernie was playing a prank. By the time the police arrived, the group of belligerent men were long gone. 
though the white Rutgers professor may not have realized it. Even calling the Newark police could be a hazardous choice for African Americans at the time, when the city was a tinderbox of racial tensions. Interactions with police could range from antagonism to violence. This time, the cops leaned towards indifference, leaving the housing complex after finding no sign of the disruptive chanters. Ernie's uncle, William, came by and listened to the details from Regan Ernie. The three of them were cleaning up the pieces of the broken lamp when an ashtray leapt from the end table next to them, grazed William's chin, and flew into Mabel's bedroom, landing on the floor. Reg immediately looked over at Ernie, who was holding a dustpan with both hands, collecting the leftover lamp parts. William cried out from the living room. This time, a pepper shaker had struck him in the back. Mabel consults with one of the endless array of experts that visited. Growing anxious, the three of them prepared to leave the apartment. Ernie stepped out first, and as William was turning off the kitchen and living room lights, William yelled out again. A salt shaker had struck him in the back of the head, seemingly slow, seeming to slow down as it did, before accelerating and smashing against the living room wall and landing on the ground. As the two men rushed to get out of there as fast as they could, another ashtray on the bookshelf near the door came off the shelf and landed between William and Dr. Reek. Ruling out rigged objects, Reek's records elevated the events to the level of a confirmed case of RSPK. A few days later, a reporter from the Newark Star-Ledger and the assistant director of the NHA came by the apartment to investigate again. While there, the two men heard a noise in the hallway and watched as a pill bottle on a shelf flew and landed in Mabel's room. The reporter, sensitive to suspicions that Ernie had to be behind the incidents, documented that with Ernie in his room at the time, he would have to teleport back and forth to have been responsible for the act. When the reporter interviewed neighbors and witnesses, nobody could explain what was happening in the Clark apartment. Rieg firmly believed that the energy of the adolescent was the linchpin of the case, in the tradition of scholarly literature on RSVPK. Rieg decided on another experiment. He asked Ernie to choose a target for the RSPK forces, as he recorded in the case files. Ernie chose a mustard jar that he put down on the kitchen table. Twenty minutes later, while Ernie was in the living room and Rieg and Williams or Rieg and William were in the kitchen, the mustard jar left the table and moved over the heads of the two men, crashing against the wall. Rieg noticed yet another oddity that defied physics. The jar, he reported, seemed to shatter before reaching the wall. In early September 1961, the massive Henry Hudson Hotel in Manhattan's bustling Columbus Circle played host for three days to the unique group of visitors from around the world, the Parapsychological Association Convention, a blur of dark suits and floral dresses. Between the participation in symposiums and lectures, Dr. William G. Roll, who is the director of the Psychical Research Foundation at Duke University. I'm pretty sure that's not the word. (laughs) and considered a leader in the community, met Charles Rieg. Roll had been reading about the purported 
poltergeist in Newark when it first became public in May, and after crossing paths with Dr. Rieg, the case now captured his entire interest. The German-born Roll 35 had fought in the Dutch res resistance in World War II before pursuing paranormal studies at Oxford, where he penned a thesis on theory and experiment in physical research. It says psychical, P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-A-L. Psychical research. I'm going to go with it. A dapper dresser in an exotic accent and a love for nature, he commanded every room he entered. On September 9th, the last day of the convention, Roll ventured into Newark to visit the apartment for himself. When he arrived, he learned that Ernie had been staying for a few weeks at his aunt and uncle's place, where no disturbances had been reported. Whatever was happening, a nexus seemed to exist involving the apartment at 125 Rose Street, Ernie and Mabel. Roll asked Mabel to bring Ernie back to the apartment so the professor could observe him there. Roll, a pioneer researcher and prolific writer on paranormal subjects, had been the one to coin the term RSPK a few years earlier when the Herman family in Long Island reported unexplained phenomena in their home. The Hermans had two adolescent children, and Roll believed that inner turmoil in the young family members had unleashed the poltergeist, a situation eerily similar to what was now being experienced by Ernie and his family. Once Ernie returned to stay at Mabel's apartment, Roll visited them multiple times. At one point, Roll was in the hall outside the apartment when he heard a commotion. According to Ernie, an ashtray hit the power button on the remote control, shutting the TV off while the boy was in the middle of watching something. As per his notes, Roll rushed into the apartment to witness an ashtray still moving on the floor. Ernie was seated quietly and calmly on the couch the opposite end of the room. Another time when Roll was inside the apartment, money went missing from Mabel's purse. With the visiting professor and Mabel herself suspecting Ernie must have swiped it. However, uncharacteristic of him, but his pockets were empty. When the boy took the trash to the basement, he found money strewn around the halls, including one bill ripped in half. All told, adding up to $2 more than what had gone missing as if the forces were toying with them, this time trying to direct the adult, adult's ire and blame against Ernie. Emotions ran high. Just as Roll felt he was coming closer to figuring out what was causing the disruptions, Mabel grew agitated with the whole investigation. She told Roll and Ernie both to leave the apartment. Roll reassured Mabel nobody would get hurt, but as Roll began to debate with Mabel, something hard hit him in the back of the head. It was a bottle. Roll had been facing the direction of Ernie, who remained calm and composed in the same position on the sofa. Ernie later revealed that a bottle struck him too when he had walked out of the apartment. Sending Ernie back to his aunt and uncle was, so, was no simple matter of convenience, but also safety. Accounts of extended poltergeists from the same era described conditions that got so bad they became deadly. In the 1960s, a young girl in Brazil began to be tormented by strange movements of stones and bricks in and around rooms she entered. The incident turned into an all-out assault when, according to reports, her food was tainted when poison fell into it, and she was suffocated by a series of objects that landed on her face while she slept. When Ernie's aunt and uncle no longer had the resources for him to stay with them, he moved back to, into Mabel's apartment. 
In the coming months, the two reported being terrorized by the poltergeist. The TV set, the washing machine, the refrigerator, and even a kitchen cupboard crashed to the floor. Ernie lived in a constant state of terror. Most of these larger objects were property of the Newark Housing Authority. In his notes, Dr. Rowe recorded the very practical impact. From being a family problem, the poltergeist now mushroomed into a problem for a housing project and thereby county authorities. The Herman family of Long Island, whom Rowell had studied in 1958 until their own experiences with poltergeist faded, reached out to express their support for Mabel and Ernie. Keep up your courage, Lucille Herman urged, and don't panic. The Hermans had been on the cover of Life magazine, and years later their case was said to have inspired a classic horror film, Poltergeist. While receiving their share of press, Ernie and Mabel had turned into subjects of rumor and innuendo. Looking back, it becomes difficult not to sense racial bias in the way the compassion for the Hermans, who were white and middle class, contrasted with the suspicion and distrust of Ernie and his family. The tenant at 125, or the tenants at 125 Rose Street, some of whom had witnessed incidents, generally believed that the family's accounts, but also feared a malevolent spirit. All right, let's take a break and get back into it after this. Continuing where we left off with Ernie and Mabel. All right. With nowhere left for Ernie to stay, Mabel brought him to the Newark police station and begged them to take him in to protect him. They refused. They said there was nothing they could do for him unless he broke the law and was deemed mentally unstable. Mabel brought Ernie to the house of one friend and then another. At each house, a disturbance reportedly occurred and nobody would allow Ernie to stay. The forces, whatever their cause, whatever they were, had broken free of the confines of the apartment. For the NHA, the policy dictated removing problems, or at least shuffling them elsewhere. Irving, the division director, worked closely with a caseworker supervisor from Essex County District Office and a representative from the New Jersey Board of Child Welf Welfare. A decision was made. Ernie would be removed from Mabel's custody and placed in a group home. Dr. Roll saw a unique chance to be more deeply explore a once-in-a-lifetime case, but he was operating under a ticking clock. RSPK cases tend to end abruptly, which investigators believe make them so elusive to observe. Consulting with Charles Rieg and experts at NYU who did an examine, examination of Ernie, Roll scrambled to arrange a trip that December for Ernie to come to the parapsychology laboratory as Duke University. Since the events seemed to begin and intensify when Mabel was around, they wanted to make sure she was present too. Ernie and his grandmother had not seen each other for a month when they were reunited to go to North Carolina. If Roll felt pressure to make a discovery, so did Ernie. This would be his last chance to have an authority figure advocate returning him to his grandmother. The parapsychology laboratory, which had been established in 1935, occupied the second floor of what was known as the West Duke Building, a grand neoclassical structure of white pressed brick. The winter afternoon, they arrived in Dur Durham, 
Ernie and Mabel were walking down a hallway outside of Roll's office when a book that was on Roll's desk fell onto the hallway floor. The poltergeist was still active, Roll concluded, and was ready to be confronted on a laboratory territory. Roll brought them to the Jack Tar Hotel, where a room waited for them. Once Roll returned home, he received messages from Mabel that things were, had devolved at the hotel. When Roll rushed back to their room, he arrived to the site of Ernie on the floor with his arms around the television. Ernie and Mabel reported that an ashtray had fallen and that a glass smashed while Ernie was inside the bathroom. Ernie described seeing toothpaste float from the shelf into the bathtub. Then Mabel related how a lamp that she had put on the floor to avoid from breaking flipped over and the phone fell down. That was the moment when Ernie had grabbed the television to keep it from falling over. Roll rushed Ernie to his own house to stay there instead of the hotel. Dr. Gaither Pratt, another psychologist who worked at Duke, ended up sneaking into the hotel to repair the damages. Laboratory observations began on Duke campus on December 18th. With the bevy of investigators involved, stakes and tensions mounted as details of what happened at the hotel and at Roll's office were collected. The fact that the parapsychology laboratory failed to inhibit the poltergeist, Roll later reflected, offered an opportunity for closer observation that we have been able to achieve so far. Technicians placed cold metal discs on Ernie's head as a neurology professor tested his brainwaves. At first, the neurologist concluded Ernie's tests fell in the normal range. But after reviewing the results, he noticed odd spikes of activity he was uncertain how to classify. Dr. John Altrosi, professor of medical psychology, heard in a group of graduate students to interview and observe Ernie. He became fascinated by the boy. He is the only person I ever examined. Altrosi reported, with no discrepancy between self and ideal self. That is, Ernie did not have an idealized version of himself that he wished to present, further supporting conclusions shared across the board by investigators that Ernie was not trying to deceive anyone about his role or understanding of the phenomena. Altrosi considered how difficult it must have been for Ernie to be an African-American boy being examined by strange white people in hospitals and laboratories 500 miles from home. Duke was still an all-white student body and faculty, a year away from becoming the last major university to integrate its campus. Altrosi observed that the bashful Ernie tended to keep all his emotions, positive or negative, bottled up to the point where they seemed to be ready to burst at any moment. The questioners pushed Ernie to the point that tears filled his eyes, even as he continued to deny feelings. In a word association test, Ernie responded in particular to the words birthday and home, evoking the first report of the poltergeist on the evening of his birthday at Mabel's apartment, which was another in a long line of places he had called home that had a pattern of being ripped away from him. The experts observed that just as Mabel wished Ernie was more open to affection, Ernie longed to a level of attention and love he was not given, or could not be given, considering all the losses of the last few years. Ernie's strong exterior broke. He admitted that kids had been picking on him at school, and it made him angry. The taciturn boy 
wouldn't have recounted these specifics, but the cruel taunting was easy enough to imagine. Look at that police car, Ernie. Are they chasing your mom? However, much as he tried to suppress it, a storm of sadness and fury brewed inside of him. Even darker secrets spilled out. Ernie described the angriest he had ever been in his life as coming in the wake of his father beating him as a child. Altrosi's case notes presented a fascinating snapshot of inner turmoil. It became clear at an early age, no matter how furious he was, he felt completely helpless and unable to express or act upon the anger. What also became clear was that Ernie had quietly lived through a childhood of explosive violence. Altrosi and his team delved further into the impact of the tragedy of Ernie's parents on his inner life. It is interesting to note the case records point that his grandmother describes him as timid, like his mother, so that it is conceivable that he has the idea that if he should never let his any anger out, he would kill somebody as his mother did. With such a breakthrough in the psychological workup, it fell on the paranormal experts to accelerate their own examination. A suite was prepared with a one-way mirror to observation chamber. Dr. Gaither, who had been the one to clean up the visitor's hotel room, volunteered to observe from the other side while Ernie and Mabel were placed in a meeting room and asked to wait. After a while, Mabel left for a short period. Dr. Gaither watched as Ernie took two measuring tapes from the table, quickly hid them under his shirt. While Mabel returned and left again, Ernie threw the two tapes after her. Not seeing Ernie throw the tapes, Mabel called for Roll and told him another unexplained event had occurred. When, confronter, when confronted, Ernie decided throwing the tapes, or er, Ernie denied throwing the tapes at his grandmother. In that moment, everything turned upside down. For the skeptics who had been circling the case, it would have seemed that was left was to stamp the whole thing as fraud and declare that Ernie, indeed, had been fooling everyone all along. For believers, they have to struggle to reconcile this moment with others that Ernie could not possibly have manipulated. The biggest twist was yet to come. The Duke scientists swarming around Ernie came from across the university and other institutions, and with experts chiming in from departments ranging from electrical engineering to mathematics, they initiated a polygraph and numerous other in intensive tests, including the, wet, the Wessler Intelligence Scale for Children and the Rorschach Test, the Thematic Upper Perception Test, and figure drawing exercises. From these tests, Roland and his colleagues ref referred to Ernie as a daydreamer with below average intelligence, but also showed he had a latent ability to excel. The polygraph test was conducted by Roll with the professor's full knowledge that Ernie threw those tapes at his grandma. First, he asked Ernie a simple question with simple answers. Did you take a plane to Durham? Did you go to public school when you were living in Newark? Ernie, struggling to keep up with so many tests, slumped down in his seat. I'm sleepy, he said. Just sit straight forward, lift your head, and relax, Roll said. This led into direct questions about the specific incidents, including the one from May where the lamp fell in the living room while Dr. Reed had his arm around him. Ernie said that he didn't know how it happened, and the polygraph confirmed his position with flying colors, supporting Reed's insistence that Ernie could not have been manipulating the disturbances. But how to reconcile the incident 
states, independent witnesses, relatives, reporters, neighbors, and housing authority and paranormal investigators had concluded that had been genuinely unexplained with the fact that the boy threw those measuring tapes in front of their eyes. When questioned, Ernie insisted he did not throw the tapes at his grandmother. Then came a shocker. The polygraph showed Ernie was entirely honest when he denied throwing the tapes. Either Ernie, who they had just tested in a below average range, had outwitted the polygraph and a cater of Duke University faculty, or something bigger, something stranger was going on. Duke's Dr. Ben Feather, meanwhile, hypothesized Ernie and confirmed that Ernie, er, that Ernie possessed no knowledge of throwing the measuring tapes. Feather concluded that Ernie threw the tapes in a state of disassociation, which the team believed might relate to the unexplained cerebral spikes shown in the EEG. Building on this theory of disassociation, what surprised Roll was that Ernie seemed to be unconscious both during moments of the documented genuine events and in the instance with the tape measure. During his interview with the boy, Feather was able to unearth more of the boy's past, giving insight into his psyche and possibly forces of energy around him. When asked about his father, the young boy appeared to show disdain and described a cruel man who beat him and his mother, which oftentimes landed the elder Ernest in jail. According to these accounts, two years of constant fighting had contributed to his mother killing his father. In Feather's observations, Ernie did not appear to show any sort of emotion toward his father's death, except relief that his father had not been killed, had not been the one to kill his mother. Or in another interview, Ernie admitted admiration and fondness for his father. The team examining Ernie came to the conclusion that the poltergeist experiences were connected to family turmoil as well as psychological distress and trauma. In light of the test indicating disassociation, these forces invading Ernie's broken family could now have turned into something even more dangerous and chilling, taking control of Ernie himself to carry out disturbances. Unseen forces controlling objects around him appeared to evolve into unseen forces controlling him. The one-way mirror into the room where Ernie had been at that pivotal moment presented another intriguing element. Supernaturalists believe mirrors reflecting mirrors, and effects sometimes recreated in carnival funhouses, could open paranormal pathways. And for centuries, experts of the paranormal have advised covering mirrors while sleeping. It was a nightmare scenario for the specialists and the family members alike. Ernie could be slipping away from them. Back in Newark earlier that year, Charles Rigg had suggested that Ernie might learn to harness and control the psychokinetic forces that seemed to surround him. Now, as the case at Duke came to a head, a pivotal moment had arrived for the experts to either help or discard Ernie. In the case of the Herman family, the Long Island poltergeist case, even the police had become involved alongside Roll's team in trying to understand and overcome the mysterious occurrences, with the Hermans reportedly finding peace once the forces were banished. Giving hope to Ernie was the fact that Roll had actually moved into the family's home experiencing poltergeist, and even ended up becoming a de facto foster father to a young woman who was kicked out by her family after a poltergeist. But those other cases seemed to be divided from Ernie's by racial and socioeconomic fault lines. Not only did the police refuse to help Mabel and Ernie, they turned them away. In the Herman case, the investigators could take their time in the single-family home, both to thoroughly observe the family and help put the poltergeist behind them. 
But in Newark, a continuation of the disturbances would mean certain eviction for Mabel with a threat to sink into poverty. Ernie indicated to the team at Duke that he would really like to live with his grandmother and if only these objects would stop flying through the air, he would be able to return to her. As the moment of truth came towards the end of the family stay in Durham, the team could have braced for the possible extended battle grappling with the unexplained forces on one side and with the bureaucratic officials on the other to keep Ernie's family together and finally give them hope for the future to finally turn Ernie's home into a home he could count on. Instead, they crushed those hopes with a far blunter recommendation to solve this psychological and paranormal crisis. Ernie and Mabel should be separated for good. With the frenzy around the Project Poltergeist quieting down, reporters and professionals began to leave Ernie and his family alone. After a stint in a foster home and a farm for foster children, Ernie's Aunt Ruth and Uncle Williams took him back to their Belleville home. While similar incidents of glasses and items flying and breaking occurred in Bellevue, far away from the limelight, they prov proved less violent than in Newark. In October 1965, Anne, who was paroled after serving eight years in Clinton Ref Reformatory for Women, shortly after she was released, Anne was murdered by a pair of alleged mobsters seeking vengeance for the murder of their prized boxer just a few years before. Unrest in Newark's public housing and with its drastic inequalities and institutionalized racism, as well as police treatment of minority citizens, contributed to a major riot in 1967. A National Guard tank was driven into the courtyard of the Felix Fold housing project, and the buildings where Ernie had spent so much time echoed with gunfire. They overextended William and Ruth, sending their orphan nephew back to a group home, but they ultimately embraced stability for Ernie. William promised Ernie that whatever was going on with him and following him around, they would face it without the help of psychologists and parapsychologists. The incidents gradually stopped by the time Ernie turned 18 and joined the Marine Corps. For years after parting ways with Ernie, Roll continued to speak about the Newark events at parapsychological conventions and write about it in technical journals. The 1962 Parapsychological Association Convention, the first to take place after Ernie's experiences, was hosted for at the Jack Tar Hotel, where Ernie and Mabel had stayed, and featured talks on what happened in the Newark housing project. The case contributed to Roll's rising stock in the paranormal community. Ernie remained in New Jersey throughout adulthood. He married and had children of his own, the violent incidents receding into family lore. But later, Ernie's wife claimed to experience some unusual phenomena in the house. An occasional glass would drop in the kitchen from time to time. There was one moment in particular she never forgot. She woke up in the middle of the night to glimpse what she believed to be a man sitting on their windowsill. Startled, she jostled Ernie to let him know what happened. Ernie responded as though he knew what just what it was she had seen. Just go back to sleep, he said. Don't worry about it. What an amazing story. And one about a poltergeist that I've actually never heard of before. So, really cool. Alright, so I go over to Reddit where people are asking, GhostTube, the app. Is it real, or is it just wishful thinking to use a phone app to pick up ghost chatter? It's asking the group, has anyone used the ghost tube, or has a good opinion of it? I downloaded it last night and left it running in the background on my phone while I slept. 
Well, as I was falling asleep, something said my name at the moment. I would have been going into a deep sleep. This morning I checked it and thought, no way. Then I was whispering my name, my partner's name, and all of a sudden said Amanda, which I'm pretty sure the lady who passed away next door a while ago, her name was Amanda. I could be wrong, so I'll find out for sure. I'm still very skeptical, but would love to hear if it worked for others, or if it's just a dud. Alright, let's see what some people had to say to this. There's a pretty lengthy response from Violence Room... And they say, so first off, I used to work with an organization in Arizona as a medium. Their classification, not mine. I don't practice anymore since I have four kids and I'm very busy with other things now. But I still get contacted by whatever it is you want to call them. Ghosts, interdimensional beings, etc. I'm not definitive on what they are myself. And I don't know how any of it works. But I do know that these beings or entities tell me things I shouldn't know and appear as if they are, at the very least, mimicking people who have passed away. I prefer scientific explanations and constantly work at trying to save the recorded intelligent conversations. So Ghost Tube. I was looking for cheap equipment and saw re reviews for this app online. I was very skeptical. I had downloaded apps in the past that were obviously nothing and had little hope for this one. The first four times I used it, I picked up absolutely nothing, not one word of any of those times, and absolutely no EMF readings. So I took three of my daughters to a live ghost hunt with some real paranormal investigators. We used this app along with other equipment, and the EMF on the ghost tube mimicked the readings on the real EMF detector. We picked up several names of people who were reportedly haunting this place. We also had a few intelligent responses. I couldn't believe it, honestly, because I thought the app didn't work. While we were there, the investigators revealed to us that they used the same app, in addition to their other equipment. Double blown away. Professional investigators were using the app? After our experiences here, I looked up GhostTube on YouTube, where the creators of the app explained how it works. The GhostTube app literally does the same thing as the Ovalis in terms of entities manipulate the electromagnetic field to select words from the dictionary, which is, of course, only a theory. And the EMF detector is actually simple technology that our phones are capable of using. The EMF uses your phone's internal compass to detect magnetic fields. That's it. That's all it does. It's the same thing a real EMF detector can do. Our phones are actually quite advanced. It was... I was intrigued to see I could communicate elsewhere and get intelligent responses. Back at home, where I thought the app didn't work, I started to see spikes on the EMF and also started having a ton of words come through. I assumed this is because I opened myself up to these interactions by going on paranormal investigations with my daughters. As I said, I don't practice anymore, and it has been a long time since I did anything like this. I'm guessing that I opened up some floodgates, like something happens at very active sites. Things will follow me around and reach out to me a lot after those events. So there have been things going on in our house before this, things going missing, etc. But since our ghost hunt, we have experienced lights turning off, cabinets opening, strange feelings, daughters have seen and felt entities... 
two of my daughters are very in tune and have some interesting feelings and heard words in their heads that I could corroborate hearing and feeling myself. One night when I was in the bathroom, the light got flipped off, which admittedly startled me. And in my mind, I thought I heard someone asking for help. We decided to turn on the app. The EMF reading was the highest I've ever seen it since we went on the ghost hunt. I recalibrated it because I thought it was messed up and was giving me inaccurate readings. Nope. Tons of words started coming through, random and irrelevant. I sent out some calming vibrations around me and asked for the entity's name. It said Jane right after. I was intrigued. It asked me the date. I told it. Then it said, what happened to me? In pain. I told it I didn't know, but I wanted to help. I just needed more information. I asked what it remembered. It said, don't come in. At the same time, I hurt and felt it in my mind. I saw a hazy woman's face in my head, and she was repeating, don't come in. I felt really sad, too. Then the app said burnt. It gave several other responses, but nothing really definitively intelligent. I had such strong emotions speaking with this entity that I decided to do some research. Looking online, I found out that a woman named Jane and her husband had been shot by a home intruder and then their house was set on fire not far from my own home back in 2007. The woman's picture was the same face I had saw in my head. Their murder is still unsolved. I'm assuming don't come in were the last words Jane may have said. Their death is actually pretty weird in this little town of only a thousand people that we moved into a few years ago. The police reports say that no one in town knew anything or saw what happened. I find this hard to believe because if you fart outside, one of your neighbors will find out. The town is very small and people have nothing to do but get in each other's business. We have gotten some responses from Jane that said bribed. And now I'm wondering what's actually happened. I'm currently scheduled to visit their burned down home with my daughter, but I'm waiting for some other equipment I ordered. Jane told me a few other names, and I want to try to get more information and see if I can figure this out. Sounds insane, probably. I don't pretend to know anything about ghosts or what happens after we die. I just take in information. Since then, my daughters and I have had other conversations that seem intelligent. Once I find time to clip out dead air in the recordings, I want to start posting them on YouTube. In my own experience, I would say that GhostTube is doing what it says it's doing. Right? Somebody else responded, Wow, I just started using this. I downloaded it, and my mom and myself are both mediums. We feel and talk to them, daily. So I opened the app and set it up and learned how to use it properly. It first said, okay. I replied, okay, what? And it came back and said my dad's name, Gregory. My dad is still alive. I then replied, yes, that's my dad. I got no responses, so I asked, who are you? And before it could respond, my time ran out on the video. So I definitely feel that someone in our family or friends of my dad was trying to connect with me about my dad. All right, downtown ad says, so last night I played with this while lying in my bed, and now I wish I hadn't. Because they asked me my name and then told me satanic, portal, radio, follow, etc. But I did, so this morning I'm still trying to be dismissive of the app, thinking and hoping that it's bull. I had no sleep, by the way, so it turned out I turned it on to review what had said last night, and the first thing it says to me is cursed. Cursed. 
Twice? Is this for real? Do I need to find a priest now? There's one by DieFedH, and they say, The problem with these apps is that they're randomly throwing up words and names, and as they are quite general and common, people assume that it must be paranormal, as it has matched something that is related to you. However, unlike proper EVP sessions with just an audio recorder, there isn't any logical way for two-way communication, as there isn't anything the phone is doing that the ghost could use, and the apps aren't doing anything apart from throwing random names out and words and noises. Alright, illustrious title says, I was stood by my mom's urn last night. I'm also a skeptic because I love to hear from her. I stood quietly thinking of her and my phone says morning, like grief and mourning. I said nothing. It said it again. I asked if it was my mom and it said no. I went to put the kettle on in the kitchen. It asked twice if I was okay. I got a bit upset thinking, is this for real? Is someone being considerate of my emotions? I asked if it feels emotions, and the response was immune. It then said surgeon, so not sure who was replying. I asked a few curious questions about what it was like in that world, and there was a delay. Then I got danger, then leave me alone. So maybe I took the conversation too far, but those responses didn't feel random. Still not sure, maybe more test run may answer my skepticism. Alright, Dirtwing Duck said, update on app. So shortly after all this, I decided to show my wife the app when I got home from work. Moments after turning on GhostTube, GhostTube original app, a word came through. It stated my legal name that I never go by. As me and my wife kind of started laughing nervously, she stated, well, only people mad at him call him that. Are you mad? Instantly, it stated, always. Since then, I do not turn on the app in my house. <laughs> now, side note, I don't know what I believe yet in ghosts. I like to think they're real. The thing is that in that moment, I didn't have a feeling something evil or negative said that. Me and my wife just had a feeling like it was something just talking crap. An old friend who passed, maybe. I'm in recovery and have lost a lot of people in my life to it. May Ravix said, I know this is an old post, but I actually have some interesting results using the GhostTube app. Until recently, I was living in a decently large house that we later moved out of because our old roommate screwed us over. The vibe of the house is, in general was horrible, and in the one year we lived in that house, at no point did I ever feel safe while I was there, to the point where I would turn on the hallway light because I would feel like something was watching me. That said, they never did anything physical to me living in that house, at least nothing I could prove. For the most part, just based on what they told me on a couple of occasions using the app, all they really did was just observe. I would have instances where I would see pinpoint-sized balls of light floating around the house, but they were relatively few and far between, and I was never able to explain them away on the rare instances I did see them. As dumb as it may sound though, because of the way I felt in the house, I never slept in the dark. I would always have a light on somewhere, and it wasn't because I was afraid of the dark. I actually sleep perfectly fine in the dark, where we are at now. Something about that house though unnerved me to the point where half the time I felt like I was going insane. By using a combination of the Ghost Tube app on one investigation and dowling rods on another, 
Sometimes combining the two, I would frequently get intelligent responses to questions. I asked them. I have a ton of recorded sessions from the GhostTube app, but sadly posting all of them would just be a pain. Bad reception area right now. But if you ever listen, interested in seeing all of them, I can post them as unlisted videos. I do, however, have a one-minute recording of one of the investigations that I did in the house. The reason it's one minute long is because GhostTube actually limits how long you can record for if you haven't bought the premium. A bummer, yeah. I get it, but they need the money too. Right? And then she's talking about that clip, at what seconds you can hear stuff. I know people will have their opinion on the apps, but just judging on what I've seen and experienced in that house personally, I can say the app is not bogus. I've tested it in areas I knew for a fact were not haunted or had little to no source of electricity nearby, like power lines, and never got any readings on it. Furthermore, areas in the house where I did get relatively high readings wouldn't read the, that way again after the investigation suggesting it wasn't just electrical interference from the house itself, but instead something intelligent that knew I was looking for it. Go Benny Go said, I downloaded it yesterday. I didn't ask any questions. I was far too scared. I turned the volume down low on my phone so I didn't hear it beep and hear anything out loud. Sounds ridiculous. I wanted to hear if any words came through. I was like, or I was at my parents when I, it was first on. It said, what should I do? Then an hour or so later, I got dislike, gene, and speak. I went home and got 10 disfigured and lower within about a minute between words. I was petrified to ask anything else. My house is very, very dark without lights on. I always sleep with the lights on. This person says, I downloaded this app and it immediately worked. I just listened for a while and finally asked, why are you here? And a man's voice replied, protect. Then shortly after it said, sleeping, the cat, which my cat was sleeping behind me. I also heard things like, it's here, and which hallway? I always, or I only have one hallway, so I'm not sure, but it was interesting nonetheless. All right, so that's enough of those stories off of Reddit. Um, I know I have downloaded the GhostTube app just to see what it was for, you know, it was kind of like a fun activity. Um, and I've gotten quite a few uh, scary responses and quite a few random ones. Um, I know at the airport where I used to work, um, I got it out and asked how they're doing. And they said, it's so cold. And then a couple minutes later, it said frozen. And I was like, oh my gosh. But, uh, you know, kind of taking it like tongue in cheek, like, eh, this could be fake. I don't know, <laughs> you know. Um I do know whenever I pulled it out at home and was showing my mom, who is a believer because she's sensitive, but like also pretty much is like, you shouldn't play with any of this stuff at the same time. Um, and I said, mom, it's not real. None of this is real. And she was like, or the app said, you're funny. As I'm making that kind of like, haha joke. And so it was kind of like, okay, we can be done. <laughs> I have heard people that have gotten things like hell, demon, behind you, stuff like that, but I'm not sure about any of that. I know other paranormal investigators that are local to our area have used it in all the cemeteries that they go to, and they actually get quite a few intelligent responses. So I'm a skeptic, but I'm a hopeful skeptic. Like, 
okay, I'm not mad at it if it knows how to, you know, manipulate the electromagnetic, magnetic, and uh, technological stuff and <laughs> give me some answers. I'm not mad at it. Um, but yeah, I thought that would be a cool way to close out this ghosty episode. And if you want to follow us on our Facebook page, it is Paranormal Stories, Spooky Shiz in parentheses, or you can just search for P.S. Spooky Shiz. Stay spooky, my friends.